Les Miserables, Volume 1, Book 2nd, Chapters 12 and 13, The Bishop Works, and Little Gervais, by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood, of Dramatic Reading Scene and Story Collection, Volume 003. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dramatis Personae Narrator, read by Joanna Michael Hoyt Madame Maglore, read by T.J. Burns Monseigneur Bienvenue, read by Todd Gendarme, read by Greg Giordano Jean Valjean, read by Wayne Cook Little Gervais, read by Jasmine Soma Priest, read by Larry Wilson the next morning at sunrise, Monseigneur Bienvenu was strolling in his garden. Madame Maglois ran up to him in utter consternation. Monseigneur! Monseigneur! she exclaimed. Does your grace know where the basket of silver is? Yes, replied the bishop. Ah, oh, Jesus, the Lord be blessed, she resumed. I did not know what had become of it. The bishop had just picked up the basket in a flower bed. He presented it to Madame Magloire. Here it is. Well, said she, nothing in it. And the silver? Ah, returned the bishop. So it is the silver which troubles you. I don't know where it is. Great good God, it is stolen. <gasps> the man who was here last night has stolen it. In a twinkling, with all the vivacity of an alert old woman, Madame Maglois had rushed to the oratory, entered the alcove, and returned to the bishop. The bishop had just bent down and was sighing as he examined a plant of cochleare de Guillon, which the basket had broken as it fell across the bed. He rose up at Madame Maglois's cry. <gasps> Monseigneur, the man is gone. The silver has been stolen. As she uttered this exclamation, her eyes fell upon a corner of the garden, where traces of the wall having been scaled were visible. The coping of the wall had been torn away. Stay! <gasps> Yonder is the way that he went. He jumped over into the Cushville lane. <gasps> ah, the abomination! He has stolen our silver. The bishop remained silent for a moment. Then he raised his grave eyes and said gently to Madame Maglois, And, in the first place... Was that silver ours? Madame Maglois was speechless. Another silence ensued. Then the bishop went on. Madame Maglora, I have for a long time detained that silver wrongfully. It belonged to the poor. Who was that man? A poor man, evidently. Alas, Jesus, returned Madame Maglois. It is not for my sake, nor for mademoiselle's. It makes no difference to us, but it is for the sake of Monseigneur. What is Monseigneur to eat with now? The bishop gazed at her with an air of amazement. Ah, come. Are there no such things as pewter forks and spoons? Madame Magloire shrugged her shoulders. Pewter has an odor. Iron forks and spoons, then? Madame Maglois made an expressive grimace. Iron has a taste. 
Very well, said the bishop. Wooden ones, then. A few moments later, he was breakfasting at the very table at which Jean Valjean had sat on the previous evening. As he ate his breakfast, Monseigneur Welcome remarked gaily to his sister, who said nothing, and to Madame Maglois, who was grumbling under her breath, that one really does not need either fork or spoon, even of wood, in order to dip a bit of bread in a cup of milk. A pretty idea, truly, said Madame Maglois to herself, as she went and came. <gasps> to take in a man like that, and to lodge him uh, close to oneself? <gasps> And how fortunate that he did nothing but steal. Ah, mon Dieu, it makes one shudder to think of it. As the brother and sister were about to rise from the table, there came a knock at the door. Come in, said the bishop. The door opened. A singular and violent group made its appearance on the threshold. Three men were holding a fourth man by the collar. The three men were gendarmes. The other was Jean Valjean. A brigadier of gendarmes who seemed to be in command of the group, was standing near the door. He entered and advanced to the bishop, making a military salute. Monsignor, said he. At this word, Jean Valjean, who was dejected and seemed overwhelmed, raised his head with an air of stupefaction. Monsignor, he murmured. So he is not the curé? Silence, said the gendarme. Is he Monsignor the bishop? In the meantime, Monseigneur Bienvenu had advanced as quickly as his great age permitted. Ah, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you. But how is this? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get two hundred francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Monsignor, said the brigadier of gendarmes. So what this man said is true, then? We came across him. He was walking like a man who was running away. We stopped him to look into the matter. He had this silver... And he told you... interposed the bishop with a smile that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he had passed the night? I see how the matter stands, and you have brought him back here? It is a mistake. In that case, replied the brigadier, we can let him go? Certainly, replied the bishop. The gendarmes released Jean Valjean, who recoiled. Is it true I am to be released? He said in an almost inarticulate voice and as though he were talking in his sleep. Yes, thou art released. Dost thou not understand? said one of the gendarmes. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. He stepped to the chimney-piece, took the two silver candlesticks, and brought them to Jean Valjean. The two women looked on without uttering a word, without a gesture, without a look which could disconcert the bishop. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically, and with a bewildered air. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it is not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. 
Then, turning to the gendarmes, You may retire, gentlemen. The gendarmes retired. Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Jean Valjean left the town as though he were fleeing from it. He set out at a very hasty pace through the fields, taking whatever roads and paths presented themselves to him, without perceiving that he was incessantly retracing his steps. He wandered thus the whole morning, without having eaten anything and without feeling hungry. He was the prey of a throng of novel sensations. He was conscious of a sort of rage. He did not know against whom it was directed. He could not have told whether he was touched or humiliated. There came over him at moments a strange emotion which he resisted, and to which he opposed the hardness acquired during the last twenty years of his life. This state of mind fatigued him. He perceived with dismay that the sort of frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was giving way within him. He asked himself what would replace this. At times he would have actually preferred to be in prison with the gendarmes, and that things should not have happened in this way. It would have agitated him less. Although the season was tolerably far advanced, there were still a few late flowers in the hedgerows here and there, whose odor as he passed through them in his march recalled to him memories of his childhood. These memories were almost intolerable to him. It was so long since they had recurred to him. Unutterable thoughts assembled within him in this manner all day long. As the sun declined to its setting, casting long shadows athwart the soil from every pebble, Jean Valjean sat down behind a bush upon a large ruddy plain, which was absolutely deserted. There was nothing on the horizon except the Alps, not even the spire of a distant village. Jean Valjean might have been three leagues distant from D. A path which intersected the plain passed a few paces from the bush. In the middle of this meditation, which would have contributed not a little to render his rags terrifying to anyone who might have encountered him, a joyous sound became audible. He turned his head and saw a little Savoyard, about ten years of age, coming up the path and singing, his hurdy-gurdy on his hip and his marmot-box on his back. One of those gay and gentle children who go from land to land affording a view of their knees through the holes in their trousers. Without stopping his song, the lad halted in his march from time to time, and played at knucklebones with some coins which he had in his hand, his whole fortune probably. Among this money there was one forty-sous piece. The child halted beside the bush, without perceiving Jean Valjean, and tossed up his handful of sous, which up to that time he had caught with a good deal of adroitness on the back of his hand. This time the forty-sous piece escaped him, and went rolling toward the brushwood until it reached Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean set his foot upon it. In the meantime, the child had looked after his coin and had caught sight of him. He showed no astonishment, but walked straight up to the man. The spot was absolutely solitary. As far as the eye could see, there was not a person on the plain or on the path. The only sound was the tiny, feeble cries of a flock of birds of passage, which was traversing the heavens at an immense height. The child was standing with his back to the sun, which cast threads of gold in his hair, and empurpled with its blood-red gleam the savage face of Jean Valjean. 
Sir, said the little Savoyard, with that childish confidence which is composed of ignorance and innocence. My money. What is your name? said Jean Valjean. Little Gervais, sir. Go away, said Jean Valjean. Sir, resumed the child. Give me back my money. Jean Valjean dropped his head and made no reply. The child began again. My money, sir. Jean Valjean's eyes remained fixed on the earth. My piece of money? cried the child. My white piece, my silver. It seemed as though Jean Valjean did not hear him. The child grasped him by the collar of his blouse and shook him. At the same time, he made an effort to displace the big iron-shod shoe which rested on his treasure. I want my piece of money, my piece of forty sous. <laughs> the child wept. Jean Valjean raised his head. He still remained seated. His eyes were troubled. He gazed at the child in a sort of amazement. Then he stretched out his hand towards his cudgel and cried in a terrible voice, Who's there? I, sir, replied the child. Little Gervais, give me back my forty sous, if you please. Take your foot away, sir, if you please. Then irritated, though he was so small and becoming almost menacing. Come now, will you take your foot away? Take your foot away, or we'll see. Ah, it is still you, said Jean Valjean, and rising abruptly to his feet, his foot still resting on the silver piece, he added, Will you take yourself off? The frightened child looked at him, then began to tremble from head to foot, and after a few moments of stupor he set out, running at the top of his speed, without daring to turn his neck or to utter a cry. Nevertheless, lack of breath forced him to halt after a certain distance, and Jean Valjean heard him sobbing in the midst of his own reverie. At the end of a few moments the child had disappeared. The sun had set. The shadows were descending around Jean Valjean. He had eaten nothing all day. It is probable that he was feverish. He had remained standing, and had not changed his attitude after the child's flight. The breath heaved his chest at long and irregular intervals. His gaze, fixed ten or twelve paces in front of him, seemed to be scrutinizing with profound attention the shape of an ancient fragment of blue earthenware which had fallen in the grass. All at once he shivered. He had just begun to feel the chill of evening. He settled his cap more firmly on his brow, sought mechanically to cross and button his blouse, advanced a step, and stopped to pick up his cudgel. At that moment he caught sight of the forty-sous piece, which his foot had half ground into the earth, and which was shining among the pebbles. It was as though he had received a galvanic shock. What is this? He muttered between his teeth. He recoiled three paces, then halted, without being able to detach his gaze from the spot which his foot had trodden but an instant before as though the thing which lay glittering there in the gloom had been an open eye riveted upon him. At the expiration of a few moments he darted convulsively towards the silver coin, seized it, and straightened himself up again, and began to gaze afar off over the plain, at the same time casting his eyes towards all points of the horizon, as he stood there erect and shivering, like a terrified wild animal which is seeking refuge. He saw nothing. Night was falling. The plain was cold and vague. Great banks of a violet haze were rising in the gleam of the twilight, he said, Ah, and set out rapidly in the direction in which the child had disappeared. After about thirty paces he paused, looked about him, and saw nothing. Then he shouted with all his might, Little Gervais! Little Gervais! He paused and waited. There was no reply. The landscape was gloomy and deserted. He was encompassed by space. There was nothing around him but an obscurity in which his gaze was lost, 
and a silence which engulfed his voice. An icy north wind was blowing, and imparted to things around him a sort of lugubrious life. The bushes shook their thin little arms with incredible fury. One would have said that they were threatening and pursuing someone. He set out on his march again, then he began to run, and from time to time he halted and shouted into that solitude, with a voice which was the most formidable and the most disconsolate that it was possible to hear. Little Chauvet! Little Chauvet! Assuredly, if the child had heard him, he would have been alarmed, and would have taken good care not to show himself. But the child was no doubt already far away. He encountered a priest on horseback. He stepped up to him and said, Monsieur le curé, have you seen the child pass? No, said the priest. One named Little Chauvet. I have seen no one. He drew two five-franc pieces from his money-bag and handed them to the priest. Monsieur le curé, this is for your poor people. Monsieur le curé, he was a little lad, about ten years old, was a marmot, I think, and a hurdy-gurdy, one of those serviors, you know? I have not seen him. Little Gervais, there are no villages here. Can you tell me? If he is like what you say, my friend... He is a little stranger. Such persons pass through these parts. We know nothing of them. Jean Valjean seized two more coins of five francs each with violence, and gave them to the priest. For your poor, he said. Then he added wildly, Monseigneur l'abbé, have me arrested. I am a thief. The priest put spurs to his horse and fled in haste, much alarmed. Jean Valjean set out on a run in the direction which he had first taken. In this way he traversed a tolerably long distance, gazing, calling, shouting, but he met no one. Two or three times he ran across the plain towards something which conveyed to him the effect of a human being reclining or crouching down. It turned out to be nothing but brushwood, or rocks nearly on a level with the earth. At length, at a spot where three paths intersected each other, he stopped. The moon had risen. He sent his gaze into the distance and shouted for the last time. Little Gervais, little Gervais, little Gervais. His shout died away in the mist without even awakening an echo. He murmured yet once more, Little Gervais. But in a feeble and almost inarticulate voice, it was his last effort. His legs gave way abruptly under him, as though an invisible power had suddenly overwhelmed him with the weight of his evil conscience. He fell exhausted on a large stone his fists clenched in his hair and his face on his knees, and he cried, I am a wretch. Then his heart burst, and he began to cry. It was the first time that he had wept in nineteen years. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he was, as we have seen, quite thrown out of everything that had been his thought hitherto. He could not yield to the evidence of what was going on within him. He hardened himself against the angelic action and the gentle words of the old man. You have promised me to become an honest man. I buy your soul. I take it away from the spirit of perversity. I give it to the good God. This recurred to his mind unceasingly. To this celestial kindness he opposed pride, which is the fortress of evil within us. He was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him yet that his obduracy was finally settled if he resisted this clemency, that if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years, 
and which pleased him, that this time it was necessary to conquer or to be conquered, and that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. In the presence of these lights, he proceeded like a man who is intoxicated. As he walked thus with haggard eyes, did he have a distinct perception of what might result to him from his adventure at D? Did he understand all those mysterious murmurs which warn or importune the spirit at certain moments of life? Did a voice whisper in his ear that he had just passed the solemn hour of his destiny, that there no longer remained a middle course for him, that if he were not henceforth the best of men, he would be the worst, that it behooved him now, so to speak, to mount higher than the bishop, or fall lower than the convict, that if he wished to become good he must become an angel, that if he wished to remain evil he must become a monster? Here again some questions must be put, which we have already put to ourselves elsewhere. Did he catch some shadow of all this in his thought, in a confused way? Misfortune certainly, as we have said, does form the education of the intelligence. Nevertheless, it is doubtful whether Jean Valjean was in a condition to disentangle all that we have here indicated. If these ideas occurred to him, he but caught glimpses of, rather than saw them, and they only succeeded in throwing him into an unutterable and almost painful state of emotion. On emerging from that black and deformed thing which is called the galleys, the bishop had hurt his soul, as too vivid a light would have hurt his eyes on emerging from the dark. The future life, the possible life which offered itself to him henceforth, all pure and radiant, filled him with tremors and anxiety. He no longer knew where he really was. Like an owl who should suddenly see the sun rise, the convict had been dazzled and blinded, as it were, by virtue. That which was certain, that which he did not doubt, was that he was no longer the same man, that everything about him was changed, that it was no longer in his power to make it as though the bishop had not spoken to him, and had not touched him. In this state of mind he had encountered little Gervais, and had robbed him of his forty sous. Why? He certainly could not have explained it. Was this the last effect and the supreme effort, as it were, of the evil thoughts which he had brought away from the galleys, a remnant of impulse, a result of what is called in statics, acquired force? It was that, and it was also perhaps even less than that. Let us say it simply, it was not he who stole, it was not the man, it was the beast, who, by habit and instinct, had simply placed his foot upon that money, while the intelligence was struggling amid so many novel and hitherto unheard-of thoughts besetting it. When intelligence reawakened and beheld that action of the brute, Jean Valjean recoiled with anguish and uttered a cry of terror. It was because, strange phenomenon, and one which was possible only in the situation in which he found himself, in stealing the money from that child, he had done a thing of which he was no longer capable. However that may be, this last evil action had a decisive effect on him. It abruptly traversed that chaos which he bore in his mind, and dispersed it, placed on one side the thick obscurity, and on the other the light, and acted on his soul, in the state in which it then was, as certain chemical reagents act upon a troubled mixture by precipitating one element and clarifying the other. First of all, even before examining himself and reflecting, all bewildered, like one who seeks to save himself, he tried to find the child in order to return his money to him. Then, when he recognized the fact that this was impossible, he halted in despair. At the moment when he exclaimed, I am a wretch, he had just perceived what he was, and he was already separated from himself to such a degree that he seemed to himself to be no longer anything more than a phantom, and as if he had, there before him in flesh and blood the hideous galley convict, 
Jean Valjean, cudgel in hand, his blouse on his hips, his knapsack filled with stolen objects on his back, with his resolute and gloomy visage, with his thoughts filled with abominable projects. Excess of unhappiness had, as we have remarked, made him in some sort a visionary. This, then, was in the nature of a vision. He actually saw that Jean Valjean, that sinister face, before him. He had almost reached the point of asking himself who that man was, and he was horrified by him. His brain was going through one of those violent, and yet perfectly calm, moments in which reverie is so profound that it absorbs reality. One no longer beholds the object which one has before one, and one sees, as though apart from one's self, the figures which one has in one's own mind. Thus he contemplated himself, so to speak, face to face, and at the same time, athwart this hallucination, he perceived in a mysterious depth a sort of light, which he at first took for a torch. On scrutinizing this light which appeared to his conscience with more attention, he recognized the fact that it possessed a human form, and that this torch was the bishop. His conscience weighed in turn these two men thus placed before it, the bishop and Jean Valjean. Nothing less than the first was required to soften the second. By one of those singular effects, which are peculiar to this sort of ecstasies, in proportion as his reverie continued, as the bishop grew great and resplendent in his eyes, so did Jean Valjean grow less and vanish. After a certain time he was no longer anything more than a shade. All at once he disappeared. The bishop alone remained. He filled the whole soul of this wretched man with a magnificent radiance. Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He wept burning tears. He sobbed with more weakness than a woman, with more fright than a child. As he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul, an extraordinary light, a light at once ravishing and terrible. His past life, his first fault, his long expiation, his external brutishness, his internal hardness, his dismissal to liberty, rejoicing in manifold plans of vengeance, what had happened to him at the bishops. The last thing that he had done, that theft of forty sous from a child, a crime all the more cowardly and all the more monstrous, since it had come after the bishop's pardon. All this recurred to his mind and appeared clearly to him, but with a clearness which he had never hitherto witnessed. He examined his life, and it seemed horrible to him, his soul, and it seemed frightful to him. In the meantime a gentle light rested over this life and this soul. It seemed to him that he beheld Satan by the light of paradise. How many hours did he weep thus? What did he do after he had wept? Whither did he go? No one ever knew. The only thing which seems to be authenticated is that that same night the carrier who served Grenoble at that epoch, and who arrived at D about three o'clock in the morning, saw, as he traversed the street in which the bishop's residence was situated, a man in the attitude of prayer, kneeling on the pavement in the shadow, in front of the door of Monseigneur Welcome. End of chapters 12 and 13 of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo